Um, if you're there with us, uh, turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to uh, study through uh, the rest of the chapter. So we're going to start in verse 4, end up in verse 20. I know that last week was pretty thick and pretty technical. Um, this week we've got a long text, and yet I think we're going to see it's an exciting text. Um, I'm really excited about it. So um, let's pray and just ask that the Lord would bless uh, his word and just get us off to a good start uh, this morning. So, Father, we thank you for today, and we do thank you for the opportunity to be together, Lord. We thank you that you help us to overcome all of these technical difficulties. Father, we pray, Lord, that your word would go forth with power this morning, despite uh, a rough start, Lord. We know that there's power in your word, Lord. We know that your spirit wants to teach us and wants to speak to us. Lord, that's why we've come together this morning. Lord, we want to offer up our worship and our praise to you, Lord, as we um, as we study your word, Lord, and just allow the ministry of your spirit to be active. And uh, we want to be open to that today. And so we, we do look forward, Lord, expectantly to what it is you're going to do. And we ask your blessing, Lord, on your word and on this time. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Revelation chapter 1, again, starting out in verse 4. And we started to look last week at what we said was likely one of the most controversial and one of the most discussed and scrutinized, misunderstood and misinterpreted books in the entire Bible. And yet, hopefully, uh, what we saw in just those first three verses that we looked at last time, hopefully we saw just the opposite. Hopefully what we saw is that instead of this book just simply being kind of a collection of puzzling prophecies that are there to satisfy our curiosity, but much more so it is a very orderly presentation of the glory of our Lord Jesus. And that we saw that this prologue that we looked at last time, just those first three verses, but I think so concisely you know, that just has all of these basic facts that are going to undergird the entire study of uh, our book. So it's got the subject, right? The who of the book, that it's all about the risen, glorified Jesus Christ. It had the purpose of the book or the why of the book. And that was Jesus wanting to reveal to his church those events that would come in the future for the church. Also the method, right? The how of the book, all those signs and symbols that were used. We saw that the angel, remember, signified things to John in order to convey this message and as a way of just communicating these deep spiritual truths. And we also saw finally that the key to unlocking all of this New Testament symbolic revelation is really deeply but so very plainly rooted in all of the previous prophetic and a lot of the different kind of apocalyptic revelation from the Old Testament. So this morning, as we move on, we're going to move on in the book of Revelation with the actual revelation of Jesus in heaven. We're going to see now is the Holy Spirit now pulling back the curtain to reveal the glory 
of Jesus. And I think that what we're going to see is that this actual revelation of Jesus in heaven, it has so much incredibly important and practical application for us here in our lives, even now on earth. But before we get to that revelation, John begins this letter with kind of that customary greeting. Look in verse 4 of Revelation chapter 1, where John starts out and he writes, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. So this letter was really specifically addressed to seven churches that were there in the Roman province of Asia. Now remember, Asia doesn't refer to Korea or Japan or China, Vietnam, those, those countries we would think today of Asia, but it refers instead to that area of what would have been present-day Turkey that very same area which we've seen so much of the activity in the early book of Acts. And we mentioned last week that John, in the later years of his ministry, had oversight of all of these churches in this region. So it would make sense that he would write to them. It's sort of, you know, he wrote first to those who knew him best. And though I think we're going to see later that there's very likely a more specific reason that this specific letter was specifically written to these specific churches. And so it's to these people that John knew so well, to these people no doubt that he loved so much. He begins there, continuing in verse 4, with grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. So just like most of the New Testament authors, here we see John combining that customary Greek greeting of grace with the Hebrew greeting of peace. Because beautifully, it's both of those together, those two beautiful words, grace and peace, they so concisely summarize both our Christian standing before God as well as our experience with God. Grace, right? The Greek word charis, speaking of God's attitude towards us as believers, and then peace, which is that Hebrew word shalom. It speaks both of the peace we have with God and the peace of God, which is ours because of our faith in Jesus. And we notice, as we study through the New Testament, we notice, and we've pointed out before, that these two words always come in the same order, don't they? It's always grace first and then followed by peace because we can't have peace until we have received that grace. And we see this all throughout the New Testament, right? This repetition over and over and over again because it's something which we need to hear and which we need to experience over and over and over again. And that's John's heart here. That his heart is that this grace and this peace would come directly to us from the God of heaven who's revealed to us here in those three distinct persons that make up the Godhead. First, you see John describing God the Father as him who is and him who was and him who is to come. And this is actually simply the literal meaning 
of that name that God communicated to Moses. Remember back in Exodus chapter 3, the I am, right? Yahweh. He is, he was, he will be. It's the eternal God. That sense that God's there standing above history, outside of history. He's not limited at all by time. And next we see John referring to the Holy Spirit with that reference there to the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now seven, we know in the Bible, very often often represents a number of completion or the number of fulfillment, right? Seven days in a week, right? So it stands here for the fullness or the completeness of the Spirit. And we sort of wonder, okay, where is it in the Bible that we may have seen the Spirit connected with this sense or this idea of seven? And of course, in Isaiah chapter 11, speaking prophetically of Jesus as the coming Messiah, It says that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So in this one verse, we have the one spirit, but sort of the sevenfold working of his power. It isn't that there are seven different spirits of God, rather that the spirit of the Lord has these seven characteristics. He has them all in fullness and in perfection, that these are the things that he produces then within a human life. And then finally, of the three persons of the Trinity, we see Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over all the kings of the earth. And what's interesting is though normally known as the second person of the Godhead, Jesus here is mentioned last, primarily because of his prominence in the book. We see Jesus is presented here, again, in this one verse, in his threefold ministry, right? It's such a beautiful description of his person and of his work on our behalf. First of all, as a prophet, right? The faithful witness. Jesus is the faithful witness of who God is because he came to reveal to us the Father. Remember in John 14, chapter 9, they said, hey, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Jesus himself said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And the word faithful here simply means true or accurate. And notice that John says that Jesus is the singular. Right? That's a good word to circle, at least in your mind, if not in your Bible. He is the faithful witness of the Father because no other person, right, no other Christian will ever be that. Now, knowing that, simply it isn't an excuse on our part as Christians not to try to grow in holiness or not to, to try to grow in our Christ-likeness. But the point is that no one should ever look at a Christian and base their view of God on that alone because we will never, ever adequately or accurately, rightly represent him. Only Jesus can do this, which is why we need to constantly consistently be pointing people to him. 
right? With grace and with humility, pointing people to Jesus, because Jesus came to be that faithful witness. Not only the faithful witness, right, or prophet, but next John declares effectively that Jesus is our priest. When he says there he's the firstborn from the dead. Now, in that culture at that time, in the Middle East and Asian culture, and even so in large part today, the firstborn was special. The firstborn was unique. And there were privileges associated with being the firstborn that the rest of the children in the family simply didn't have. When the father died, the firstborn in the family would have then had ultimate authority over the family. The firstborn son would always receive a double inheritance. And so John says Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Understand, though, this isn't saying that Jesus was the first ever to rise from the dead. People were raised from the dead in the Old Testament. Jesus raised people from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He raised the son of the widow of Nain. He raised the 12-year-old daughter of the ruler of the synagogue. Just this morning in our reading, he raised her from the dead. And so Jesus wasn't the first to be raised from the dead. But what this is saying is that just as the position of the firstborn was unique in a family, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is unique in all of human history because all of these others were raised from the dead, but Jesus raised himself from the dead, never to die again. And those are two entirely different qualities of resurrection. And so his resurrection is unique and it's special in human history because it represents authority over death, his ability to raise from the dead, and then his ability then to share that with us, that victory over death, he shares that with his people. So he's our prophet, right? He's the faithful witness. He's our priest. He's the firstborn of the dead, sharing that authority over death with us. And finally, also, he is our king, right? John says here he's the ruler over the kings of the earth. And when we read this, I think we can't help but think about Isaiah chapter 6. And you remember when Isaiah declared this, he said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then it says that angels were crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now understand that King Uzziah was one of the greatest kings that the Jews ever had. He ruled something like 50 years. There were 50 good years, 50 wonderful years over that nation, and now he's dead. And now we have the whole nation in a situation where they're wondering what's going to happen to Judah now. You know, at that time then, when everybody's kind of questioning, they're kind of shaking a little bit, wondering, maybe even Isaiah himself was wondering what would happen now that the king was off the throne. But we see it's at this moment that God gives Isaiah this revelation of the throne that's behind all other thrones. 
right? That throne that's never empty, the throne that God sits on. And so here, John tells us that it's Jesus who's actually sitting on that throne. Jesus sits on the throne that's never empty. He is the throne that's behind all of the other thrones of the world. He's enthroned even now in heaven. And certainly this also looks to the future. As we'll see, he's going to reign on earth on a throne for a thousand years, where he will actively, physically, sovereignly rule over the world, just as the Old Testament scriptures prophesied. Zechariah chapter 14 says that in that day, it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, half of them toward the western sea. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be. The Lord is one and his name is one. So we think about all that is wrapped up right, in the person of Jesus. He's this threefold ministry as our prophet, priest, and king, and only he is worthy of our worship daily. And we see next that John sort of breaks out into praise for Jesus based on the threefold work that he then accomplished for us. Look what it says in the rest of verse 5. John says, To him who loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Right? These verses, right, they describe this precious relationship that Jesus has with us. First of all, John says he loved us. John calls Jesus him who loved us. And what a beautiful title that is for him. Now, this may seem to be something kind of elementary to point out, but we point it out because we can never doubt the love that Jesus has for us. And I think that there's something so beautiful about the way specifically that John expresses this, because notice there in that verse, at the end of verse 5, he says that Jesus loved us, past tense, because it looks back to the cross. We know this because notice what John says that Jesus did based on that love. It says that he washed us or he freed us from our sins in his own blood. That's more than just covering over our sins, right? It was Jesus' sacrificial death upon the cross for us. It's proof of his love for us, and it provided this beautiful washing away of our sins and an incredible freedom now from our sins. In Isaiah chapter 53, it says that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so because of that, we now stand clean before God. We can stand there cleansed of the deepest of stains because of the tremendous price was paid in order to make that possible. It's so very humbling and it is so very, very beautiful. Right? Every believer should be so incredibly secure in God's love, not based at all on our present performance, right? Not, not based on how we're doing now, 
but based on his love for us, which began so long before that. Remember what Paul wrote to the Romans. Romans chapter 5, Paul said that God demonstrates his own love towards us in that what? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were at our worst, Jesus loved us and he died for us. And sometimes Satan will try to whisper in our ear that somehow we have overstepped God's love. He'll say, oh, look at you now, you know, the mistakes that you've made. Look at the mess that you are in now. God certainly couldn't still love you. He must have abandoned you, right? But that is simply not possible. Because the work of Jesus on the cross for us, when we were at our worst, that's the proof we have, the unchanging proof we have of God's love for us, then, now, always, forever. And when we consider who's writing this to us, it reminds us that not only did Jesus love us despite our past or even our present performance, but Jesus loves us even in the midst of whatever it is that's our current circumstance, which may be terrible. Here's John, right? Here he is on this island of Patmos. We said it was six feet, six miles wide and 10 miles long, basically a, a big heap of lava in the middle of the sea with a bunch of caves that the prisoners had to mine. He's likely almost 90 years old. Here he is in this Roman prison colony. And this is where, as he's writing this, and yet it never occurs to him, it never causes him to doubt God's love for him. Because he knew that God's love wasn't reflective at all of his circumstance. He knew that he was loved. He knew that he had been washed, regardless of how things might look at the moment. And did you notice there the order? Notice that it's first loved then it's washed. It wasn't like God washed us out of some sense of duty and then he loved us because we were clean. No, he loved us while we were dirty and then he washed us and not only washed us, but he desires to use us. And it's a, as a result of this, notice what John says, that we are now kings and priests to his God and Father. Literally what John writes is that Jesus has made us a kingdom of priests unto God. Not only washed us from our sins, but then he's made us part of this kingdom. It's like what Paul has written to the Colossians, that Jesus delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. But wait, right? There's more, right? Not only has God allowed us to be part of a different kingdom, and, but allowed us to become priests of that kingdom. That's how we get to spend our time now. Now, I don't know how you spent your life before you came to the Lord, but I didn't spend mine in a very priestly fashion. And yet this is this great 
privilege now of how we get to live our lives as priests. Now, the Old Testament in the priesthood, remember there were two primary functions, and the first of which was the priest was supposed to represent God before the people, right, before the world. And so Paul writes the very same thing concerning us as Christians, that we are ambassadors, right, for Christ. It's our privilege to be that and to do that and to represent the Lord to the world. And the second function of the priest was to represent the people before the Lord, right? In prayer and in intercession. And that's the second privilege that's ours as well, is to pray for people and to lift them up in prayer before the Father. And so here's John thinking about this now, that this is now how he gets to spend his life. He's a part of God's kingdom. He has the privilege of being a priest, and this is what he gets to do for God no matter where it is that God has him doing it, and it just sends him into praise with those final words, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen, which literally means so be it. And when we pause like John and think about it, what else could we possibly say than the same thing? But more, more importantly, what else should we possibly do? Because remember, when we say this, right? When we say to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, we aren't actually giving Jesus glory and dominion because he already has it, right? All we're doing is recognizing that he has it and we're honoring him for it. And personally, if we're going to recognize the dominion of Jesus, what that really means is that we're going to allow him to rule over us. We're going to allow him to have that dominion in our lives. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, if we truly say to him, be glory and dominion, then we must give him dominion over ourselves. Each man is a little empire of three kingdoms, body, soul, and spirit, and it should be a united kingdom. Make Christ king of it all. Do not allow any branch of those three kingdoms to set up for itself a distinct rule. Put them all under the sway of your one king. Right? We should all be living holy wholeheartedly each day for him, watching for his promised return, which is precisely what John writes about next. Look in verse 7. He says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, and they also who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. So Jesus is alive and he is well, and he is on his throne now in heaven, but he is coming back one day to the earth. And so John pivots here from praising Jesus now to describing his second coming in the clouds, right? When Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation back to the earth with his church accompanying him, right? Christ's second coming 
is going to be visible to the entire world, including unbelievers. We know that his first coming, it was sort of uh, somewhat obscure, right? Even during his earthly ministry, as powerful as it was, Jesus never made the front page news back in Rome, did he? But when Jesus finally comes again, the whole world will know. They will all mourn. And specifically, where John says here that every eye will see him, they also who pierced him. That's a reference specifically to the Jewish people. Now, we're going to get to it eventually. But at the final battle in the Valley of Megiddo, all who have come then, all the nations as they're coming against Israel, Jesus will return to the earth at that moment for his second time, not in anger against the Jews, but to rescue them. Even though as a nation, they had rejected him and they had put him to death. And the Jews then will mourn and they will grieve over their initial rejection, the fact that they missed their Messiah the first time. Their hearts will be broken over the incredible price that they have paid as a people and the price that they have paid personally for rejecting Jesus, who himself now declares in verse 8, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, most of you probably notice in most of your Bibles that these words are in red letters because they are the very words of Jesus himself. And I love this because it's sort of like John has finished with his introduction and now Jesus introduces himself. And notice in this introduction, Jesus begins by making such a clear and a powerful declaration of his own deity. Jesus Christ is the eternal one. He's the alpha, the omega, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet, right? The beginning and the end. He is the eternally existent one. He is the almighty. He is exactly who the Old Testament Jews referred to as the all-powerful one, right? The El Shaddai. And the idea, of course, behind these titles is that he is before all things and that he will remain beyond all things. And think about this from a personal perspective. If Jesus is both the beginning and the end, then that means he also has authority over everything in between. Again, it means that Jesus does have a plan for human history, that he does direct the path of human events toward that sort of designated fulfillment. It means that each one of our lives personally are not given over simply to blind fate or to some kind of random meaninglessness or endless cycles with no resolution, but instead that Jesus Christ directs all of human history, he oversees each of our individual lives, and that he is almighty as he does it. He has all might, 
There is nothing, there is no man, there is not mankind altogether that can possibly stop his plan either for the world or for your life individually. He's our prophet, he's our priest, he's our king, the Alpha, the Omega, the Almighty One revealed here to us in such incredible power and glory. And in the rest of the chapter now, John is going to give us just a glimpse in the best way he can of that glory as he witnessed it. In verse 9, he says, I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, John knew what it was to be persecuted. He knew what it was to be persecuted for his faith, for his faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And we're told in church history that John was the only apostle to die a natural death. Every one of the others died a violent death for their faith in the Lord. But it doesn't mean that there weren't attempts to kill John along the way because of his faith. Last week we mentioned one of those attempts was to try to boil him in oil, and yet he survived the boiling. And so what was wicked Emperor Domitian possibly going to do with this guy? He can't boil him to death, right? He can't shut him up. Everywhere he goes, John's just more and more faithful to deliver this message, right? This testimony concerning Jesus Christ. And so Domitian says, okay, I know what we'll do. We'll send him to this heap of lava out in the middle of the Aegean Sea called Patmos. And that way he can't preach to anyone but the prisoners, right? He can't really do any harm. And yet, isn't it interesting, just as the psalmist declares in Psalm 76, he says, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. Or another translation says that human defiance only enhances your glory for you use it as a weapon. And God's got the power to do that, doesn't he? So here Domitian sends John out to this island as an outcast, somewhere where he'll have no influence for the kingdom of God, and yet it's there precisely on that island that God gives John perhaps the greatest revelation, right, with the greatest reach that he would ever have in his entire ministry, and we are studying it right here, right now, this morning. Right? It is a very hard thing to fight against God. Right? Very frustrating. And so suffice to say, it is best just not to try to do it. So here's John on Patmos, he tells us in verse 10 that this powerful revelation came to him. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, there's two possible meanings here, both of which could be accurate in the original Greek. First of all, that John was worshiping the Lord in the spirit on a Sunday, right? The Lord's day when he was given this vision by the Lord. The other possibility is that John was transported in the spirit, right? That is, he was projected forward kind of in his inner self in this vision, not bodily, 
but transported to the day of the Lord, that time when God will pour out his judgments on the earth, and John witnessed it as it happened there so that he could record it for us. So, of those two possibilities, which one is it? Well, it is maybe, probably, possibly both of them at the same time. This is another one of those areas where good and godly students of the scriptures, they can discuss and debate this issue. They have discussed, they have debated this issue for about 2,000 years, and we are probably not going to solve it this morning. And yet the point for us is that what we are about to read was given to John directly and personally and supernaturally by the Spirit to communicate to us this incredible encounter that he had with the risen Jesus, which begins now with hearing the very voice of Jesus. Here in in verse 10, John says, I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Now, I want to pause right there because sometimes it's so easy for us to read right by something and yet miss something else. Right now, just stop and imagine this just for a moment. John here actually heard the voice of Jesus, which he had heard before, and yet he heard it in a way that he had never heard it before. Now he compares it to a trumpet, right? Powerful with clarity. And notice that it's with this incredible power and this clarity that Jesus himself declares of himself once again, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And yet we just saw the very same thing two verses ago as John started. So why say it again? Well, I think that it's because so often it's in the middle of our situation or our struggle or the trial, right? The middle of where we're stuck on the island there on Patmos, that's when we need to simply be reminded that God is still in control, that he's still the one on the throne, that he's the very same God who worked in the beginning, he's the same God who holds the end, and he will continue to come through for us right here in the middle of this mess that we are in. A year in to two weeks to flatten the curve. Amen. That God is working even now in the midst of whatever difficulty you're dealing with in your life. And like John, we too need to remind not only ourselves, but we need to remind those around us that God is in control, that God is still here and that he will come through for us. And he wants his church to know this. Because look at what happens next. Jesus tells John in the rest of verse 11 there, Jesus says, what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now we're going to see that this is the first of 12 specific commands in this book. And this one is for John to write what what he saw so that it could be sent 
to these very churches in Asia Minor that he had overseen. Now, understand, there were more than seven churches in this area, and yet Jesus chose these seven churches for a very specific reason. And what's especially interesting is that these churches, most of them, aside from maybe Ephesus, most of these churches were sort of unknown. They were sort of insignificant churches. And so it seems strange that Jesus would send such an important letter to a group of relatively unimportant churches. Why not write this to the church at Jerusalem or the church at Rome or the church at Colossae, which was right in this same region? Why write to these seven churches specifically? Again, aside from the fact that John was writing first to those he knew best, many have suggested that this letter was specifically addressed to these seven churches individually, because as we will see, these churches perfectly paint a very comprehensive picture collectively. What we're going to see in our studies of chapters 2 and 3 is that these seven churches speak wonderfully to the seven periods of the church age. Each one of these churches speaks of a time in church history chronologically and consecutively. And we'll talk about it more in the coming weeks, but I bring it up now because what we need to know clearly is that this is not a letter just for a specific group of churches from the first century, but it is a letter that is rich in application for us as well, for the whole church collectively. Again, seven, right? That number of completion, that number of fulfillment. It, this letter is addressed specifically to them, but collectively to all of us. It's written to the whole of Christ's church as he's communicating his plan for his people. It says in verse 12, John writes, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. So hearing this voice that's thundering behind him, John turns. He turns to see the source. He turns to, to get a closer look. And I think you could circle that word turned because how often do we get so busy that we just don't turn, even when we hear the Lord speaking, we don't turn to take that closer look. And you say, well, I don't do that. Well, how about this? We read a passage, and the first thing we think of is, well, yeah, I've read that before. And I know this means this, and, and that means that. And we don't actually take the time to turn, to just look more intently, to really see what it is that the Lord would have fresh for us. Because when John did that, what he saw blew his mind. It should blow our minds as well. Paul declared this. He says, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. We all know Jesus as he's depicted in the gospel accounts. And yet here now we're going to see him, we're going to meet him, we're going to know him as the risen and exalted prophet, priest, king that he is. And so John continues there at the end of verse 12. He says, having turned, 
I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. So John sees, right, the glorified Lord Jesus standing in the midst of these seven golden lampstands, which we don't have to wonder very long what they are. We're going to see in verse 20, they symbolize for us the seven churches. Now, that phrase, one like the Son of Man, it's an expression that comes from Daniel chapter 7 that's used to refer to Messiah, and it was one of Jesus' favorite names that he used to refer to himself. Because Son of Man speaks of his humanity, right? It speaks of the fact that he came as one of us so that he could better relate to us and so that we could relate to him. And yet now as we continue on, now we're going to see this stunning description of our glorified Savior, not any longer in his humanity, but now in his deity. Now keep in mind, we only have two physical descriptions of Jesus in the entire Bible. And John provides one of them here for us, writing down just as he witnessed. The first thing he says there in verse 13 is that Jesus was clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Now, these remind us of the same imagery of the Old Testament priests, like it described in Exodus chapter 28. The Old Testament priests wore these long robes, and they also wore a sash or a band around that robe. And yet what's interesting is that the sash that the priests wore what it would have, was a fabric sash, which was to have these little pieces of gold thread woven into it. And yet here Jesus, right, the greater high priest, he wears a robe that has a band, but it's made entirely of gold, right? Representative, indicative, of course, that Jesus is the greater high priest. He's the greatest high priest, Right. representing us before the Father, even after he redeemed us to the Father. You think about this, from the cross, Jesus said what? He said, it is finished. Right. There's nothing more that he needed to do to secure our salvation. And yet even now, he continues to serve us, carrying on this other ministry on our behalf. In Hebrews chapter 7, it says that Jesus is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he ever lives to make intercession for them. Verse 14, it says that his head and his hair were white like wool and white as snow and his eyes like a flame of fire. So the whiteness of his hair here represents wisdom and it represents age. It corresponds to the one that we see described the ancient of days, another title given to God in Daniel chapter 7. It says that the ancient of days was seated, his garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. So here's a reference to God the Father, right? The white hair speaking of purity and of eternalness. And yet here we see that God the Son has exactly the same purity, the same eternity 
as God the Father. The Ancient of Days was Jehovah God. In other words, here, the Jehovah of the Old Testament is nothing less than the Jesus Christ of the New Testament. Pictured here with these eyes of blazing fire, right? His this piercing judgment of sin, right? His eyes see all and they judge what they see and they judge it with a sense of perfect holiness. But I think we should also be reminded, right? We should be encouraged <clears throat> that the Bible fire also often speaks of that cleansing and that burning away of impurities, the removing of the dross, the excess, right? Presently in our lives and in our experience, Jesus looks over our works. He looks into our hearts and he burns away those things so often that are holding us back from really loving and serving him with all of our hearts. He's constantly cleansing and constantly purifying us. Verse 15 says that his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. So this concept of this concept of judgment kind of carried even further here with this description of his feet like fine brass. Brass speaks of judgment, right? The bronze altar in the temple, Exodus chapter 27, it was the place of the sacrifice for sin, right? The divine judgment on that sin. But brass also speaks of strength because Christ's feet pictured here as brass because he is a firm and a sure foundation for each of us. But there's something else beautiful, I think, about this picture specifically of this burned brass, because I think that would have also reminded readers of Daniel chapter 3. Remember when we see Jesus with his servants there in the fiery furnace of persecution. Right, The feet of Christ are burned because he's been there in the fire right along with us. His voice, John says, he compares it to the sound of many waters. That's what Jesus' voice will sound like in heaven. And if you've ever visited Niagara Falls or maybe just seen footage of this incredible wonder, you can't help but be awestruck at the thunder of the falls and just the roar of the, just the force of the water as it cascades just crashing over the edge below. And this is that kind of power. It's like saying that Jesus' voice has the power and the majesty of a mighty waterfall, right? Suggesting the power and the majesty of his word. Verse 16, it says that he had in his hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. So John notices, right? There in his right hand, he holds these seven stars. Again, verse 20 is going to tell us that these are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches. And significantly, Jesus holds them there in his right hand, which indicates that they are his sovereign possession, right? That they and that we belong to him. 
right? John sees this sharp two-edged sword, he says, coming out of his mouth. And of course, that brings to mind Hebrews chapter 4, right? The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And so it represents his word, of course, that judges. And yet here's something interesting. The word that John uses for sword here in the Greek is an entirely different word than is used in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews, the word would refer to sort of a short sword that would be used kind of in close combat. And yet the sword that's used here in this passage is more so talking about a sword maybe five feet long. We're talking about a gigantic sword, right? The kind of swords like we might see in these, you know, castles you could visit in medieval England. And when somebody who knew how to use a sword like this would take a sword like that and begin to use it in a battle, that person could bring tremendous devastation very quickly upon an entire area. And so much so for Jesus, this sword coming out of his mouth, as his word comes out of his mouth, at his return in power and glory, it will bring great devastation and judgment upon all evil. And I think this is interesting too. Some have suggested along these same lines that John didn't necessarily see a literal sword coming out of Jesus' mouth, but just that in hearing him speak, that John could sense, he could feel the, the penetrating power of his words and that they were as sharp as a sword that would come out of his mouth. Right? John also tells us that the glory of Jesus Right? So great, so shining that it's even hard to look upon him. Right? His countenance or his face was like the sun shining in its strength. It's the same glory we saw him reveal just a glimpse of at his transfiguration when it said that his face shone like the sun in Matthew chapter 17. We remember from the book of Acts, right? Saul of Tarsus chapter 9 was struck down on the road to Damascus, it said, by a light that was greater than the sun. And remember, he was blinded temporarily by the glory of God that was radiating from the face of Jesus Christ. It's just awesome to consider this picture, right? Everything in this vision speaks of strength and of majesty and of authority and of righteousness. And there is such a profound difference, I think, between the, the, this vision of Jesus and so many of the weak portrayals of Jesus that we see in the world today. And yet here, the Jesus that John saw, this is the real Jesus. This is the Jesus that lives and that reigns in heaven today. This is our good shepherd Right, as he protects his sheep. And John says in verse 17 that when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. You remember when Jesus was here on earth, John tells us that he laid his head 
on his chest, and yet here we see now he falls at his feet like a dead man, just the same way that Paul had there on the road to Damascus, right? Knocked right off of his high donkey, right? The sight, the sound, the glory of just, it was overwhelming and it was paralyzing to be in his presence. And I sometimes chuckle because oftentimes you'll hear people say, you know, when I get up to heaven, I got some questions I'm going to ask Jesus Christ. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, somehow I don't see that happening the way you think it's going to go down. You know, if we each were able to just even get a glimpse, right, a real look at his unveiled majesty, it would knock us off of our feet right now. There's a, a tremendous sense of reverence that we should have for who he is. And it doesn't mean that he's not our friend. It doesn't mean that he's not our savior. It doesn't mean that he's not our shepherd. But we need to understand that he's also all of this. If this is healthy, right, to understand that. Now, do you think that John was happy at this point to be saved? You bet he was. Right? Sitting there, you know, in, in, in a hump, just in fear, right? As a dead man. And yet, look what it says in verse 17. It says that Jesus laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of death or of Hades and of death. So here Jesus, the first thing he does, he assures John, he calms his fears, first with this beautiful physical touch, and then with yet another reminder, what? That he's the eternal one, that he's the first and the last, that he's the alpha and the omega, the resurrected one, he who lives and though who once dead is now alive forevermore. Guys, this is the third time, right? Right here, out of the mouth of Jesus himself, this isn't just theology. This is incredible practical encouragement for each one of us. Jesus Christ is the first and the last. And so we don't need to be afraid, what? Of anything in the middle. No child of God who's ever trusted in Jesus Christ, we don't ever have to be afraid again, neither of him, even at his return, nor of our present, nor of our future, because he says right there, he has the keys of Hades, right? The realm of the dead. He has authority over death, authority over the place of the dead. In Hebrews chapter two, it says that through death, he might destroy him, who had the power of death, that is, the devil. You know, the two greatest enemies of mankind are death and then the judgment that our sin deserves after death, which is hell. And Jesus came to deliver us from both of those two enemies. And he says here that he has the keys to those things. And the keys of death and Hades are not to lock people up. The keys are to set people free. Amen? Because only Jesus has the ability 
to free us from the hellish, damnable sin situation that we are in, right? They have been defeated by him, and he has shared that victory over them with us. He's conquered them on our behalf. And as he finish up, we finish up here, Jesus now says this to John. He wants to communicate to his church. In verse 19, Jesus says, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. It's often said, and it's true, that this is the only book of the entire Bible that comes pre-packaged with a divinely given outline by the author, right? John was to write three things in this order. First of all, what he had just experienced, right? The things which you have seen. Chapter one, right? Presents whom John has seen. It's the person of Jesus Christ. Then he's to write, after writing about what he just experienced, he's to write about the present experience, right? The things which are. That's chapters two and three, which deal with the Lord's people. Again, we're going to see the entire scope of church history. And then he's to write, after writing about what he just experienced and what he's presently experiencing, then the future experience, right? The things which will take place after this. We're going to see that chapters 4 through 22 are going to detail the things that are yet to come, right? It's all about the Lord's program. Chapters 4 and 5, we're going to see the church taken up to heaven. Chapter 6 through 19 are going to describe the tribulation period. Chapter 20 discusses the millennium. And then in chapters 21 and 22, we're going to see the new heaven and the new earth. And so this is the outline given to John by Jesus himself. And it certainly seems to me like anyone who would try to follow any other approach is sort of presuming or assuming that they know more about this book than Jesus does. So we're just going to stick with what Jesus gave us here. Verse 10, John heard. Verse 12, he saw. Verse 17, he fell. Then he was touched by Jesus, right? He's used mightily to record this revelation for all the ages, not only this revelation of Jesus communicating to his church, but I think in verse 20, we see a beautiful picture of Jesus also caring for his church. Look what it says in verse 20 as we finish up. It says, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. We don't need to dig through the Old Testament, right? Jesus tells us very plainly what this symbolism means. The seven stars are the seven angels or the messengers, or some would even propose the pastors of those seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches themselves. Now, what's interesting, I think, and important is that these were not like the lampstands or the, the candlesticks in the temple and in the tabernacle. Those were like seven branched, you know, six side branches and one central branch, more like what we would call a menorah, right? Jesus himself 
is represented by those seven branched candlesticks there in the holy place. It says the Spirit of God is the one represented by the seven lamps that are on top of it. And yet it's during this time of his absence, right, during the time where he's serving as a priest in heaven, now John sees not just one candlestick with seven branches, but he sees seven distinct lampstands in a circle representing all of the separate individual assemblies of the collective church. And notice this. These were lamp stands, right? not actual lamps, because the church doesn't create the light. The church simply holds the light and lets it shine. Right? The light doesn't come from the lampstands. The light comes from the oil lamps on the stands. All the stands do are make the light more visible. And so the lampstands, I think, are such a perfect picture of the church because we don't produce the light. All we do is hold it there so that others can see it. I love what one author points out. He says, a lamp is not light in itself. It is only the instrument of dispensing light, and it must receive both oil and fire both symbols of the Holy Spirit, before it can dispense any. So no church has in itself either grace or glory. It must receive all from Christ its head, else it can dispense neither light nor life. And as we finally close this morning, right, we close with this wonderful picture, right, as Jesus is pictured here in his glory, in his priestly robes, in heaven as the head of the church, in the middle of these lampstands which represent the church. And understand that one of the duties of the Old Testament priest was to tend the golden lampstand in the tabernacle and eventually in the temple. And every day that priest had to fill the oil and clean away the soot, trim up the wicks. They had to closely inspect. They had to constantly care for the lamps so that the lamps could burn continually before the Lord. And here's Jesus, our high priest, in the midst of the seven lampstands, carefully inspecting and caring for those lamps that are held by the stands, helping to ensure that they always burn more brightly before the Lord. And that's what he's doing even now. He's doing it in each of our churches corporately. He's doing it in each of our lives individually, isn't he? A little trim of the wick there, a little soot removal over here, and a whole lot of more oil, right, everywhere. And it's such a beautiful picture, and it's exactly what we're going to continue to see as we look in the coming weeks at the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and chapters 3. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord, and we thank you that... Um, that your word went forth today, Lord, and that, that no 
technical difficulties could stop it. Father, we pray that it would find a place to reside in our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would um, make us good soil, Lord, to receive your word and to increase, Lord. And we, um, we just want to be open to the ministry of your word in our hearts. And we just pray for the spirit to do that work in us. And we thank you, Lord, and we praise you for it. We thank you for this beautiful vision you've given us of your son. And pray that it, um, that, that would be the vision of Jesus that's etched in our minds even today. So we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in his mighty and his matchless name. Amen. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you oh my soul rejoice take joy my king in what you hear let it be a sweet sweet sound in your ear let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Amen. God bless you guys. I pray that the Lord would pour out his grace uh, upon you mightily this week. And um, stay tuned. We hope to see some of you Wednesday night as we continue our study through the book of Genesis. Um, stay tuned for the e-bulletin each Wednesday where we'll keep you updated on all of the, uh, the developments uh, that might enable us to start meeting at some point uh, here in the future. So God bless you guys. Have a great Sunday.